we talk about the sacrifice of the elves and the men, but who stops to think about the, the sacrifice of these brave beasts of burden? Skippy the thrush, <laughs> you know, who can turn up with with a with a simple twitch of the wing or um, merciless mutilating of a snail, communicate military strategy. The key moments, I mean, just when all is lost, Dave, you know what's coming. <laughs> the eagles arrive. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to part three of Shark Liver Oil's coverage of The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Dave is with me once again, Dave. Hello. Hello, and strap yourself in, Dave, because things are about to get serious. Hang on, let me get my straps. (laughs) My seriousness straps. Right, here we we go. We have gone through from Bilbo's little hobbit hole in part one all the way through to this little precipice overlooking uh, the Valley of the Dale uh, where the dwarves and Bilbo have reached after journeying through Smog's lair in the Lonely Mountain. And part three, we're going to go from chapter 14, Fire and Water, until the very end. And the this, end of all things. This is where Tolkien pulls out all the stops. It's like they've, they've gone, right, this is the grand finale. The budget's increased. We've got big battles coming up. <laughs> the body count rises exponentially. So uh, I hope it you're really ready. It really does, Dave. doesn't it? It is as if he's gone. Does anybody else feel like we need some blood? Yeah. Like we need some. We need some dismembered limbs at some point. Shall we? Yeah. Let's yeah. <laughs> yeah. If this was a night out, this is around about the time where everyone's getting thrown out of the club and it's all about to go off. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely how I feel when I read chapters 14 to 19 of The Hobbit <laughs> by J.R.R. Tolkien so what happens in Fire and Water is we, we sort of zoom out from um, from Bilbo and from the dwarves really for the first time in, and uh, over to Lake Town which is called Esgareth which is the place where the, the dwarves and the hobbit journeyed through on the way to the mountain where they all got quite excited and celebrated for their arrival. And this sort of legend that the dwarves are going to return and bring prosperity and gold is still very much at the forefront of the population's minds because they, they look up and they, they they can sort of see in the distance over by the mountain something's going on. And then the the river turns a sort of goldy, orangey colour and and the, the people think, oh, great, you know, the... The rivers turn to gold, and um, of course it hasn't. It's just the reflection of the fire-breathing dragon, which is <laughs> on the way. <laughs> I, I like this idea that a fire-breathing dragon can so change the environment that the water changes to a golden colour without making a little bit of noise, <laughs> so yeah. that people are still looking down at the perfectly undisturbed river and are able to believe that the fairy tale is about to begin, instead yeah. of looking at the sky, which has a dragon in it. Yeah, they sort of they realise what's going on relatively quickly, um, and thanks to one sort of older chap who's running around saying it's the dragon, they actually do manage to prepare themselves for defence as uh, as Smog arrives in this in this thundering hail of fire and fury, 
and he starts doing sort of strafing runs over the over the town. <laughs> and he does, I mean, he does go all a little bit Vietnam, doesn't it? Yeah. Like um, there's, there's something a little bit kind of 20th century horrible warfare in this. Yeah, and we talked about the the thinking behind building Lake Town or Esgrath last time. Um, mm. Which and it has two big, one big pro and one big con. The pro being it's out in the middle of the lake, which means the dragon can't land, and obviously there's plenty of water around. The con being it's entirely made out of wood, which unfortunately <laughs> is extremely flammable. And and there's nowhere to go if your house burns. Like, yeah. It's not like you can step out onto the street because the street is either also made out of wood and physically linked to your house, or it's the water. Yeah. And this is the problem because when people start abandoning the town, they've just got to jump onto boats and make for the shore. And the, the dragon's pretty boats, pleased with which that. Which are also made of wood. Yeah. And the dragon's not even bothering going after them. He's thinking, well, I'll let them get to shore and then we'll, uh, we'll resume the chase. Yeah. And then, and then the buffet begins. Yeah, exactly. And here, you could know, you see it coming. The master doesn't cover himself in glory. He leaps into his, his large ship and tries to escape with everybody else in the confusion <laughs> which um i mean in the last in the last cast i was quite good on the master i said he's you know he's basically a, a talented politician and i suppose this brings down the reputation of him and all politicians somewhat as he tries to run away at the first sign of danger yeah yeah it is a little bit like i've got my personal nuclear bunker i'm all right jack yeah sort of thing um yeah, well, and he's just a tool, isn't he? As well, like I, I mean, I think there's an. I, I actually really like the character of Bard, this mm. captain of the archers, this kind of quite pessimistic guy who says, you know, no, it's a dragon, it's a dragon, when everybody else thinks it's a river of gold. Yeah. Um, I like the contrast between Bard, who has this kind of like, you know, can-do attitude, and the the master of the town, who has this looking out for himself kind of attitude. I think there's a really nice contrast there between sort of good and bad mm. leadership in a sense. Speaking of Bard, he he is the guy who doesn't run when everybody else is is losing the shit and trying to get off the trying to get <laughs> off the town. And him and a, a group of others uh, who who stay with him for a while, but even they start deserting him, uh, decide to try and hold out for a little bit longer. The problem is, there's all these archers shooting arrows, but nothing's doing any good. It's just bouncing off the uh, the outer, uh, you know, outer hide of the of the dragon. And uh, this was this bit where the the thrush comes down next to him. Um, this thrush, which was just happened to be hanging around up by the uh, by the hobbit as he was telling his story to the dwarves, he comes down next to the uh, next to Bard and, and says, you know. This is what you should aim for. This little patch of uh, of weakness in the dragon's armor, and it, it kind of—I got a bit of sort of use the force, Luke, from, uh, from this. To me. I thought that might so be where in, Luke in your head. From. In your head, when you imagine the thrush trying to communicate with the human being, which is already quite a funny scene in itself, <laughs> is it kind of going? Tweet, 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 Luke, in a kind of Alec Guinness sort of voice as well. Yeah. Is it doing... yeah. Alec, Alec Guinness doing an impression of a hyper-intelligent I would love it if um, in the third Hobbit film they got Alec Guinness to voice that. That would be quite a trick. Is he still around? No. Might... Oh, He's been dead it. since the 80s. Oh, that's a shame. Could I know, we... I, it's a, it is a crying shame. Could we find someone who does a good impression of him and get, him, get, get them involved? Because that would be... 
it'd be a nice nod to popular culture if they could do that. You and McGregor, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't it be nice? Uh, but yeah, so he, he listens, Bard, and he has his one last arrow, his, his favourite arrow, and mm. it's a one-shot kill. It's a superb shot, straight through the armour, and down comes the dragon. What do you think yeah. about that? Well, obviously it's very dramatic and it's totally awesome, and you know I'm very much looking forward to seeing it read in, in full 3D on screen. But, um, uh, but I actually, I don't know, I have trouble kind of picturing Smog. Because on the one hand, he's big enough to basically fill a mountain, and he's made out of fire, and he's this kind of... He's not just like a kind of lizard squared, like he's this apocalyptically massive beast, but then a single arrow can take him down. So you've got to ask, like, what exactly is underneath this vulnerable spot on his underbelly? Is it his heart, his lungs, his brain? Is it everything that keeps him alive? Or... Or what? Or is this just like an arrow that's like twenty foot long and goes straight the way through him? Or like yeah, because it can't you know, be that big, can it? Because it can be fired by a normal man. He, he's quite big. Exactly. He's, he's described as quite large, but but he's not. Yeah. He's not a giant. He's not like Bjorn. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so begging the question for me is, if you were a dragon who had such a vulnerable spot, where an arrow, you know, kind of a thousandth of your millionth of your size, could kill you outright one shot kill hmm. would you go around doing sort of barrel rolls in the sky over human dwellings and settlements and going nah bitches nah you yeah. work for me I suppose because like... even if they didn't know about your weak spot one lucky shot from the hundreds of arrows that are coming up yeah. would end you I think maybe this, maybe that's the point though and in the same way that smog never bothered um covering up you know uh, caving in the the secret entrance to his lair that he he's just he's so uh powerful and uh he you could tell from the way he speaks kind of arrogant with it that any thought of weakness or defense doesn't even cross his mind he doesn't he doesn't even give it the time of day to to think about something like that because he doesn't see it as it ever becoming an issue yeah, actually, you know, I uh, I think that's a good point. This is a it's quite a consistent portrait of an arrogant, just somebody who's been so powerful for so long that they have become both complacent and arrogant in it. So the the the, the dragon does come crashing into the town as his rather dramatic death. I suppose we're going to have to just do the uh, the rule of cool here and say this uh, suspend your disbelief a little bit. I, I suppose I mean there's a, there is a you're right there's a valid point to be made here isn't there about the fact that we're critiquing the realism of a mythical beast being killed by a real arrow <laughs> like yeah. if we start down that road it's going to be like I've never met anybody who's only two foot tall and lives under a hill yeah. to be perfectly honest with you and yeah. I've never seen any evidence that magic exists so <laughs> what's with that <laughs> so the the aftermath to the to, to the attack by smog is that the town is pretty much finished and everybody's understandably upset about that. And there's this power struggle that begins between, effectively, not Bard's not Bard's really a secondary uh, part of this. It, it, the power struggle is between the master and the and the rest of the population who want to sort of instill, like put put Bard on the throne. It's almost like a, it's almost like getting rid of the sort of this kind of semi pseudo democracy they've got, where they elect a master from a council. And replace it with a king again, 
um, and yeah. they want King Bard um, on the uh, be becoming the king of Esgrith, who we we find out was Bard. His his history, um, his family used to be kings over in the Dale, which is where uh, when Smog moved in up the yeah. river in the in the Lonely Mountain, they all fled to to Esgrith. At this moment, I was sort of thinking, this is a really weird place to take this story because you put two thirds of the book into the build up to this dragon and we have protagonists and the dragons are the antagonist the dragon is the antagonist and um and then you you kind of pull out a bit and it's like and now we're going to have a power struggle over in a town that we we only met last chapter but it is a very strange decision in terms of the structure of your book to be like and now we're going to leave everything we've built up to mm. and go and tell this story instead yeah um, it is a sudden departure isn't it and well and and the other thing that, that kind of grabbed me was this this idea of again I've been expecting Smog the death of Smog to be the 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 dramatic high point of the entire book, and it's not dealt with kind of it's not dismissed, but it's not the climax of the book that's going to come later in the battle of the battle of five armies, which is like the 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 battle that's bigger than the other battles you've heard about. It might as well be called, and I, yeah, I I I thought it was a bit weird because it was like. I was expecting Smog to just total the town and then fly back to the mountain filled anew with confidence and wrath. But he dies. And uh, what do you think about this political intrigue? Whose side do you come down on? Because obviously we're expected to be, I think, on the side of Bard because he's the hero, isn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. But, I mean, if you, if you put a case for the master on the other hand, you know... <laughs> That's what Bard's there to do. He's the military. He's a military guy, and um, yeah. and he's part of the army. And you have the army there to defend the town when it's under attack. Um, yeah. I'm not really sure what the population expected the master to do beyond running away with everybody else. I suppose he could have stuck around in the town to uh, offer whatever help he could, but you wouldn't imagine he planned the military defence. And uh, well, I don't know. I mean, is that not the function of an executive, like to be to be at the head of the military? Yeah. And, yeah. and kind of make those decisions rather than just going, oh shit and yeah. running away yeah, you're right, um, <laughs> I'm trying to defend him but it's quite hard <laughs> I don't know why you've got this deep love for uh, for the master, he's, he's a wanker <sighs> yeah, I just I just don't know, I think because uh, I think it's, it's not some, it, he is a weak leader but it's also yeah. the system he represents as well, I, I think it's a, well, that's it, it's quite a um maybe this is a product of its time as well because of when this was written a comment on how readily some democracies um or even or like this is, isn't really a democracy but almost democracies are willing to throw it in at the first sign of a strong uh individual who they can all rally around yeah. that could definitely be an interpretation but there's something far more fundamentally democratic in a leader who's subject to recall by his population at any time rather than just when there's an election. Yeah, that's he true. Can be told just to fuck off when he's been clearly a wanker. Like yeah. how many times how many times have there been leaders in you know under electoral systems where it's like everybody knows he's a wanker but we've got 3 years left still being in charge. Yeah, I suppose the, the population do reserve uh, do reserve the right to get rid of Bard if they don't like him, but if you if you put him there as a king then I think the inference there is that he has a right to stay there as long as he wants I just think it's 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 only because of it's quite lucky that Bard is a stand-up guy <laughs> because <laughs> you know I, I'm not not to cast aspersions on the military but you, not everybody who joins the army and rises up there 
is necessarily going to be a good leader. It's like it's like the the old thing, you know, great soldiers don't necessarily make great kings. And mm. uh, Bard could if if Bard was a a bit more of a ruthless kind of character, um, mm. just because of just just being having military prowess and bravery doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great a great leader. It turns out he is though. So. The last part of this chapter is the the arrival of the Elven King, who um, has heard about Smog dying. And... Good old drunken Elven King. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With his with his love for wine. <laughs> oh, is, 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 he, is he dead? <laughs> Boys, get on the fucking horses. There's a massive pile of gold. <laughs> imagine, imagine all the wine we could buy with all that gold. <laughs> yeah, that's it, isn't it? Honestly, honestly, we could even afford to buy Gordon's instead of. <laughs> Tesco's own gin. <laughs> to the horses! <laughs> so, yeah, he um, our first introduction to the Elven King wasn't um, particularly impressive. Um, but he he just goes from strength to strength from here on in, doesn't he? he, mm. he and, and this is the point where we really begin to see him as a, as a really great leader, I think. And this is, this is where he's marching his men over to the... Uh, over to the mountain and then change his course when he hears about how desperate the situation is for the for the men of Esgrith and goes to aid them first to bring you know vital supplies to them the that's I thought it was a nice touch the only problem I have with that is the timeline because um right. how is there such a time lag between hearing that the dragon's dead and hearing that the town is has been reduced to rubble because the dragon crashes into it when he dies. That's very true. Um, maybe I don't know. Could could it be that the dragon has been such an oppressive force on this landscape for so long that the you know the bigger news travels quickest? Mm. Like he's dead. He's dead because everybody definitely cares about that. Whereas oh, and the town of the men is also gone. Yeah, may matter less to other other people in the area, like you know wolves and. Whoever, whichever poor buggers keep raising these ponies that get taken by the dwarves and then set loose to die. Oh, um, they're back soon. Know. Don't worry. <laughs> We've got a I'm nice glad we're maintaining for the our pony count here. This is an important <laughs> subtext to the to the hobbit, I think. Um, right. Yeah, but yeah. So I, that is, you're right. I think that is quite interesting. Like the whole timeline of it. Because the other thing is, like, how quickly do do elves gallop? Because hmm. this is all quite a kind of compressed period of time yeah. um, whereas it took the dwarves, I suppose dwarves are smaller than elves aren't they but it took them quite a long time to traverse this distance yeah I suppose they were um, bobbing along on the uh, in barrels but no, that, that river moves pretty quickly so yeah I think it's a fair point I don't know. anyway yeah let's move to chapter 15 the clouds gather and here as we go between the clouds gather a thief in the night which is the next chapter and then the clouds burst the pace really picks up. They're much shorter chapters, and, and we feel like, I think that gives an impression of us rushing towards the climax of the book now. Um, and in the clouds gather, this thrush comes back. He's been a busy little bird. This guy comes back up to the uh, to the place where the dwarves and and Bilbo are, are gathered, have are gathered, and with the help of a raven translator, which he wonders <laughs> off and gets. They managed to communicate with the uh, with the dwarves. You do feel a bit like this is Tolkien working through, you know, painting his way out of a corner as he realizes <laughs> that the thrush can only speak to the men because because bars are descendants of blah de blah de blah. And then he thinks, oh, that means the thrush can't speak to the dwarves. 
and he thinks, oh, well, maybe there's another bird that can speak to the dwarves. Let's get him in. <laughs> you know what I mean? It feels a bit, a little bit clunky, yeah. this bit. Yeah, that's true. Um, I suppose kudos to Tolkien for maintaining the sort of logic of the mythology instead of just going, oh, and the thrushes were also great friends of the dwarves, and the dwarves <laughs> just forgot the language last time. Um, <laughs> this this thrush, by the way, is rapidly becoming one of my favourite characters. Skippy the thrush, <laughs> you know, who can turn up with with a, with a simple twitch of the wing or um, merciless mutilating of a snail communicate military strategy from miles and miles away. <laughs> he is. He's the I'm, unsung I'm, I'm hero, isn't fan. he? Yeah, Skippy the Thrush. <laughs> Skippy the Thrush. Right. Um, now, upon hearing the news of the uh, of these two armies, the, the Elven army and the men, who are making the way up to the mountain to demand a share of the, uh, of the gold and the treasure, the, the dwarves really do put together a, an impressive defence um, in preparation for a siege. They they flood um, the the entrance to the to the the only real entrance to the to the uh, to the mountain now. They build this wall, um, which uh, sounds like it's a pretty pretty strong impregnable. Um, well, it, it gives it basically gives them a a decent chance of twelve dwarves fending off an entire army. And also, as part of the preparations, it turns out that three of the ponies who were chased by the dragon have survived. And I was delighted to, to, to come across this little <laughs> fact. Um, unfortunately, they only really, they're only really used to help out in creating the defence, and then they're just slapped on their asses and turned loose <laughs> on their own. But I, I like to think that they run off, and then two of the ponies which have survived there end up taking... Gandalf and Bilbo home at the end of the book. I'm a, uh, I'm a bit of a romantic when it comes to you're, uh, you're to, a sentimentalist. <laughs> when it comes to pony fate, and after so much <laughs> hardship and so many casualties along the way, because few, I mean, yeah, we talk about the sacrifice of the elves and the men and even the dwarves, but who stops to think about the the sacrifice of these brave beasts of burden? <laughs> I tell you what, it reminds me of is the um. How in Hollywood, if you notice, like a standard issue kind of off-the-peg Hollywood um, uh, thriller or action movie, like if there's any action sequence involving animals, one of them is probably going, like an animal, like a tiger attacks your hero. One of those tigers is going to die, but one of those tigers is just going to run off into the jungle unharmed. <laughs> because you don't want to piss off the petter people. Um, <laughs> So I just got this wonderful, even though of course it's totally ludicrous, but this idea of Tolkien writing this thing where all the ponies die all the way through and the publisher gives it to somebody and they're like, it's an absolute disgrace the way you treat animals in this book. He's given <laughs> such a horrible role model to the kids. You've got to have one of the one of the ponies surviving at least and shown to be doing something worthwhile. He's like, alright. <laughs> and Gandalf and Bilbo went home on ponies. <laughs> what about Skippy the Thrush? He's, uh, he's up in the... Uh... <laughs> the cred count for the for the animals. That's, that's very very true. That, but he was never in danger, was he? You get the feeling that Skippy the Thrush could could weather any storm. Yeah. Like he, you know, anything that's going. He survived on this mountain when it's been inhabited by, you know, depthless evil yeah. for decades. And Skippy the Thrush is still hopping around, clever yeah. as you please, communicating with the ancestors of people who used to be his mates. Yeah. Like. He's he's gonna be there when the world stops. Skippy the Thrush. Oh yeah, yeah. I suppose actually, when we were talking about Skippy the Thrush's introduction, um, 
we've we've skimmed over what turns into the two-part great snail massacre of the book where <laughs> first this this thrush descends on them and just just kills a few of them yeah. in, in some kind of bizarre um you know two-part explanation of how to get inside and then yeah. the dragon turns up later and finishes off the job and basically obliterates the rest of them so yeah. snails are even lower on the ladder than ponies in this book and uh, i think it's probably worth pointing that out I wonder if there is like a like a, a specific society of people who are concerned for the well-being of like shell-dwelling creatures. I think it's about you time know? we made one, Dave, and I think I think we <laughs> can start it. <laughs> I'm gonna in future. I'm gonna pay particular attention to the welfare of of, of any kind of mollusk or uh, or any shell-based creature. Even. Okay, let's talk about the diplomacy here. Um, yeah. The men of the elves arrive, and it's basically the king of the elves and Bard are doing the negotiating with Thorin. Mm. Nego- negotiating probably puts too fine a gloss on it because Thorin's just flatly refusing. Now he says that he will give some of 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 his treasure to the men, um, mm. but nothing to the elves, and he will do nothing until this army leaves. Basically, says, "Get your tanks off my lawn." What do you think <laughs> about that? Well. I I actually think it's a really good sketch of a quite quite difficult situation because you can see the point being made by everybody. Mm. You know, like the um the elves the elves I think are the cheekiest out of all of them. They're just like we've heard about this treasure and now we're here with swords, but this isn't a hold up for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Um whereas the men I think have a more legitimate kind of, you know, we put you back together, we helped you get up here, we gave you swords and stuff. But I think this is, I mean, I think that itself is a really interesting thing in that Tolkien's given a chapter to the story of the people from um, from uh, Lake Town and and he's made them co-protagonists. You know, he's in, he's not he's not sent Bilbo down there to make us interested in what's happening in the town. Hmm. He's just asked us to care about this town for its own sake, right? Yeah. And then he's established them as um, opponents of the people that we followed all the way through the book. So he's actually doing something really clever, I think, which is showing us a complicated conflict mm. where you actually feel like, you know, you've got a dog on both sides of the fight. Yeah. Um, Although he does reserve a get out clause with he builds all this up and then it never really pays off because the. Um, that that sort of cliched bad guy who everybody hates does turn up and everybody just attacks and, and, and triumphs over him in the end so yeah, it's it, it does turn back into I think it explores this route for a while but then yeah. in the end maybe because it's essentially a children's book it goes back to this quite easy battle between clearly defined good and evil as everybody just yeah, yeah, yeah. comes together to, to stave off this threat from um, from the orcs who are never given anything other than a, a bad right <laughs> they're just a, a plague, yeah well really. that's true and i think that is something that we haven't touched on yet actually in the book isn't it is that your your race defines your goodness or badness mm, yeah. um you know uh and you're on a sliding scale for sure like the wood elves are kind of kind of goodish basically benign at some point he says but actually act like wankers um so it is a bit complicated, but you you never act contrary to the kind of programming of your race. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is uh, difficult, I think, as a as a way of dealing with characters, you know. And of course, 
what that means is that now whenever we write fantasy novels that's exactly what we write about is an individual who's defined by their race transcending that identity yeah um, yeah uh, which i think is a much more much more uh user-friendly story to tell these days yeah i think the difficulty with the orcs um and there's been a lot written about this i think it stems from whether you believe that they you know where they stand on the scale between animals and humans uh, you know beasts and, and and intelligent beings and mm. i think tolkien places them far more closely to you know spiders and things like that just monsters whereas yeah. i think rereadings of it um have have placed them more towards humans yeah. The the other thing to say, other thing to say about this chapter is, uh, Thorin. Part of the reason Thorin is just flatly refusing to to do any kind of serious negotiation is he's got a bit of an ace in the hole here, which is there are five hundred dwarves on the way from the Iron Hills uh, <laughs> who are going to be throwing themselves into the into the mix yeah. relatively soon. So he's thinking, if we can wait this out, as soon as they arrive, my hand's strengthened and. And we can come back to the negotiating table. Shall we go on to uh, chapter 16? I think we shall. A Thief in the Night. And who would have thought the thief is Bilbo once again? Uh, he basically sneaks out. There's a dwarf on guard duty who um, who Bilbo gets past with the minimum of fuss. Can you guess which dwarf it is? Is it Bomber by <laughs> He comes over to Bomber. Uh, Fancy having a sleep, Bomber? You want to uh, just leave me to this? Ooh, yeah, sounds good. Thanks, yeah, sure. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> I suppose, oh, that's right, because my I character to this point has been uniformly pathetic. <laughs> yeah, I suppose in Bomber's defence, he's no reason to suspect that Bilbo's up to anything. So if somebody does offer to take your watch for you, I suppose you, you could accept. Although you'd think, you'd ask why. Most dwarves would have asked why. I'd just like to make this point, I suppose, now. Um, we're a little we're skipping ahead a little bit, but I just, once again, in this scene, I am amazed at how Bomber survives the Battle of Five Armies because he's in the middle of it. He's in the midst. He must know what he's doing with the sword. Um, yeah. Because I just, he, with all of the shit that goes down later on, he, the fact that he comes out of it in one piece is is amazing to me. <laughs> Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> That's exactly. That should be his sort of T-shirt that he wears. And he, Bomber. I could, <laughs> just lucky, I guess. I'd love it. I'd love to see that on a T-shirt, actually. Just Bomber, like, just shrugging his shoulders, and underneath, <laughs> just lucky, I Ooh. guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely Bomber's approach, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, I'll be honest with you, I have my priorities. <laughs> I pursue them. Sleep is one of them. What of it? Yeah, it's very much a hate the game, not the player, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Bilbo does sneak out, and he goes. He just basically goes to the camp of men and elves, and gives them the Arkenstone, which is this this yeah. one uh, treasure which Thorin values over everything else. And Bilbo's just basically kept it on the sly. Um, which Thorin doesn't know about, and uh, it was it's quite a bold move from Bilbo. And Gandalf mm. turns up at this point as well, and he sort of gives his blessing to this decision as well. And he's quite impressed with Bilbo. What do you think about it? Well, I, I've 
to be honest with you, like it really, I liked it because it really made me feel very tense and very quite con, very quite, made me feel quite tense and and very conflicted actually about the approach of, um, uh, of kind of Bilbo to this sort of thing because Tolkien's very careful not to tell you why he's doing this. He doesn't say. Bilbo had reasoned through his actions in the following way and decided that it was important to overcome the dwarves' natural avarice because of the... You know, he doesn't do any of that. He's just... Bilbo just takes off and you're like, are you a traitor? <laughs> like, are you... Do you not care about these guys? Uh, you know, have you given up on your... And you don't know why he's doing it. And this is very much... This sense of betrayal is what we get from, from Thorin. As we move into chapter 17, the clouds burst and uh, Bard turns up at the mountain again to resume negotiations and obviously this time he has the Arkenstone to hand and it turns out I mean, Bilbo confesses that he's the guy who, who gave it to Bard and Thorin's reaction is nothing short of outright fury and hurt. Yeah. He, he feels completely betrayed by Bilbo which is kind of understandable I suppose and yeah. uh, at this point Gandalf reveals himself as well and he enters into the negotiations but Thorin basically casts off Bilbo and says, "Right, you know, you're done with us. Get out!" and yeah. sends him yeah. sends him away. And I remember when I was reading this when I was younger, I was one of those children who hated being told off and was yeah. quite afraid of authority. And this was the point where I was the most upset in the book because I hate seeing like the hero get shouted at. I remember when I yeah. first read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the point where the guy shouts at him in that, I was really upset. So this was yeah, this was the yeah, first yeah. bit this, for me. This is As, another an, that's another step beyond this uh, that as well, isn't it? This, yeah. This scene, it's a broken relationship, isn't it? Mm. And that's incredibly saddening. And um and you've and because Tolkien's got you investing so much time and energy and and um and desire for these characters to get along you know there's whole sequences earlier on where the main dramatic tension is whether Bilbo is going to be respected enough by his peers and and all of this stuff and then you come to this moment and there's just this kind of like you know this real hey well fuck you then kind of thing so so the upshot of this new development is that uh, Thorin and Bard come to a kind of agreement where Bard will give this stone back in return for um, a portion of the treasure which is to be left outside the the cave when they, when they when the army returns the next day uh, in the meantime once the uh, once the men and the elves return to to the camp the dwarves from the iron hills arrive led by dane who's a relation to uh, thorin and the dwarves are basically want to get through this effectively seed um, host which is besieging the mountain and get to the mountain. Obviously, mm-hmm. the, the men and the elves don't want to let them do that because it strengthens Thorin's hand and reduces the chance of them getting anything out of it. So it looks like it's going to come to blows. And the dwarves, it gets to the stage where the dwarves are about to, ch- well, begin the charge. And right in the middle, this is probably my favourite. This is the scene that I remember when when I came back to this book. The, the first scene I could think of was this dwarves charging on one side men and elves on the other and Gandalf appearing in the middle in this flash and basically calling a, a halt to it as the orcs arrive over the yeah. in the distance and it's such a fantastic dramatic scene and an image and I'd imagine when they come to do this in the film it's going to be the 
image of the of the final film and it's yeah. a real high point for me of the book yeah yeah there is a there is uh such drama isn't there you just imagine the the goblins uh appearing over the side of the mountain and um uh and everybody's about to have a set too nobody has any idea that they're and then gandalf and 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 ordinarily this sort of and then the nearly all-powerful character turned up and told them all to behave themselves would feel like a cop-out but actually he uses it beautifully as a fulcrum to kind of go from this moment where everybody's in each other's face to facing outwards at an enemy that wants to destroy them all this is a great set piece battle isn't it and it yeah. and he doesn't he doesn't rush through it talking he takes his time and goes it's almost like reading a I felt it was almost like reading a history of a battle, like you, you know, when you study the Battle of Hastings, and it yeah. says this is how the forces are lined up, this is how things move. It's almost looking at it from a strategic point of view. There's not very much text of down on the ground hacking and slashing. It really goes back and forth, doesn't it? You, the the men and the elves get the upper hand, and the dwarves at some point, and then the goblins climb the mountain, don't they? So they can attack from behind, and at some point the dwarves of the the uh, you know Bilbo's uh, Thorin's group charge out of the mountain and sort of the battle swings again and the key moment I mean just when all is lost Dave you know what's coming <laughs> the eagles arrive <laughs> <laughs> I mean oh I don't know this was the only bit where I thought oh again really yeah what did you think yeah, well, I, yeah, I do. I think the Eagles are an extremely well-established. Like, I um, I follow this one uh, character on Twitter who is absolutely fantastic. It's it's Geoffrey Chaucer. Somebody tweeting is Geoffrey Chaucer. Yeah. Um, but it, but you know, occasionally it will tweet about various kind of pop culture things. And um, uh, quite a while ago he tweeted, um, uh, if ever I am, and like in all the English, so. If ever I am called to go on a quest with Gandalfi, mine first question shall be, can we call the eagles now rather than later? <laughs> it is quite an amazing uh, turn of events, isn't it? How often yeah. Tolkien uses the eagles. He's always used them once in this book, and he yeah. uses them again and again, at least twice again in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose it's just about plausible that they would see this massive host of of goblins getting together and decide to intervene. Oh, just mm -hmm. just a point on the goblins. The leader is Bolg, who is the son Bolg, the goblin. of, as the film called him, and as we quite enjoyed in the first cast, Azog the Defiler. Who, uh... <laughs> Do you suppose he's called like Bolg the Dirty? Yeah. Like... It's the, just the messer upper, Bolg, Bolg the slight disheveler. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Bolg the general nuisance. Yeah, <laughs> <say. laughs> That's it, isn't it? <laughs> Bolg the general nuisance. <laughs> Bolg the antisocial behaviour order yeah. collector. Bolg the Asbo goblin. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, so he's the son of Azog, who, <clears throat> if I remember, Defiles. killed. Um, one of, I think, one of uh, Thorin's relatives was it his father, or uh, it was some yeah, close relation. Yeah, his father or his uncle or something. These mm. dwarves, they bear a grudge. It could have been his third cousin twice removed, and he still would have been. I must avenge his death. Ah. <laughs> yeah, but Bolg and his personal. It looks like Bolg and his personal guard are going to tip the battle once again 
even in, in favour of the Goblins, even after the Eagles have arrived. But then uh, Bjorn turns up as well, and he yeah. starts running amok, and uh, turns out he is, a, as you may have suspected, quite an efficient Goblin destroyer as well in his own right. So that's quite a, that's quite a cool moment, and it's a nice callback to to obviously yeah. a character that we that we met earlier on. Basically, all the good characters, with the exception of uh, the the elves across the other side of the mountains, uh, get involved here um, in the yeah, final yeah. battle. So it's a real grand finale, and it ends with Bilbo getting struck on the head by a a stray. I think it's a stray stone, a stray rock. Um, he is actually invisible for the whole battle, but quite a good point made by Tolkien is that it's not necessarily um, completely safe even if you're invisible there could be a stray <laughs> spear or arrow which hits you yeah. and the, somebody runs the problem is if something does means. wound you to the yeah. point where you can't do anything if you're invisible no one can see you to help you so yeah. Bilbo just lies unconscious for a couple of hours <laughs> um, and no one even knows he's there uh, which brings us to chapter 18 which is the return yeah. journey yeah. so Bilbo wakes up takes the ring off and then people can find him and we get to see the aftermath of the battle and Gandalf's okay he and he's we get this quite nice scene where the uh, the two meet up and Gandalf's delighted to see that Bilbo's made it through it and well you and would then, be though wouldn't you if you'd have turned up out of nowhere as like as somebody who's supposed to be incredibly trustworthy and wise and taken this guy from what is basically an extremely comfortable existence to a place where he's nearly been killed upwards of 10 times you in that moment you would be like oh thank god he survived yeah. this would have been a difficult one to explain to the council yeah. of fundamentally fit, yeah, benign I... all-powerful beings wouldn't it <laughs> why did you take this blameless and largely yeah. powerless small person and allow him to die seemed like a good idea at the time boss yeah. to be honest with you <laughs> imagine gandalf's boss <laughs> the next thing we come across is this very uh, sad scene where Thorin dies, and yeah. we we find that this is a large part of the the war having you know having a cost. It wasn't one big um, scrap where you know in the end uh, everyone's happy. Um, Thorin's killed along with a lot of other people, and yeah. there's a sort of a de- this sort of classic deathbed scene where there's a, 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 a Thorin and Bilbo make up, and Thorin apologizes for being so angry before uh, so it, it is it is a scene with great emotional impact and i think it's good that it was written so that you have this sense of reconciliation and so on but but there is a you know there is an extremely irreverent and merciless three quarters of my head which is just seeing every death scene from every <laughs> war film you've ever seen you know like kind of oh, i'm the stupid one i've always been the stupid one <laughs> just 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 hang on medic medic <laughs> yeah i suppose so bilbo's quite philosophical um on the on thorin's death and when he's talking with gandalf later he says i, I wish thorin were living but i'm glad that we parted in kindness which is quite nice yeah, um yeah and he says uh, to himself uh i mean he as he's as he's grieving um, this, I'll quiet this passage where he's, Bilbo says to himself you're a fool Bilbo Baggins and you made a great mess of that business with the stone and there was a battle in spite of all your efforts to buy peace and quiet but I suppose you can hardly be blamed for that and mm. I thought it's quite a nice and it's, I thought this called back to um, people who try to avoid war and do their best to, 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 to stop it from happening and that that necessarily in itself 
is no bad thing even if you can't do it and um, it's quite mm. interesting it was written before uh, the outbreak of the second world war but um, I think it's quite interesting in the context of of Chamberlain and uh, and Churchill and this efforts to avoid war I also quite like the fact that Bilbo isn't turned into this kind of you know psycho Norse bloodlust kind yeah. of uh, figure by being involved in this really dramatic battle. Instead, he's just he's mourning the fact that people died, and I think we don't often see that in the presentation of big, impressive military or you know action maneuvers in films and books and so on nowadays. You know, it is a very somber reaction to a battle. You're right. There isn't this. There's less of this sense of I'm so proud that I was part of such a great event. And much yeah. more a sense of this is what you know the real cost. It's, it, I'm sure it's a reflection of uh, of the effect that the First World War had on Tolkien. He was 22 when the war broke out, and um, and was you know sent over to France in 1916 um, to fight. Ended up uh, as a, a communications uh, guy at um, on the front line um, and was at the Somme, and um, and it's. And you can you can really hear the kind of um, the kind of thing which actually my my grandmother still talks about her father never talking about World War One, despite yeah. it being this really kind of defining experience for his generation, and despite the fact that her generation spoke spoke and speak about World War Two all the time. Mm. Um, and you can and you can definitely hear that coming through in um, in the way Bilbo talks after this battle and yeah. kind of Tolkien's experience there. And also, I mean, I think it is really interesting that um, that like you say, he writes this in the 1930s where the world looks to be shaping up for war again, and and you can really feel the tension in somebody who really desperately wants there to be peace and knows the horror of war mm. but knows that war may be unavoidable yeah i also think the the effect of the first world war on tolkien you can see it in the the death count and and who dies uh, be, uh, because apart from thorin the only other two dwarves who were killed are philly and killy who died mm. um defending de defending thorin because he was um their uncle and they're the throughout the book they're the two youngest of the dwarves um oh, yeah and that is that really that was I, that was a bit of a sort of punch to the stomach to me when i read that and it yeah. and it, i don't think it's any coincidence that it's the two young dwarves who are killed when no, the first yeah, well, world war is all about right. the, the the death of, of of the flower of of british youth uh so we we move on from from the battle and uh the thorin's buried with uh, Orchrist, which is the, um, the 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 sword which caused him him so many problems in the under the mountains when uh, when it sort of was revealed and uh, the Goblin King went mental because it was was known yeah. as like the destroyer of orcs or something like that. And, Goblin spanker. Yeah, and it was a uh, there's quite a nice little uh, little note here that it glows blue when orcs are nearby. So. Um, they always knew the the dwarves who lived in in this area for the rest of time that whenever there was an orc attack on the way the sword glowed blue and it's yeah. just it just shows that it's it's effectively the big brother of sting of the of the, the yeah. little dagger yeah, 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 yeah. that uh, yeah. that bilbo has and yeah. that is so famous in the lord of the rings so dane who's who's the uh, who, who's the relation of of thorin becomes the king under the mountain 
and Bilbo's offered pretty much as much treasure as he wants and he, he says he only wants a couple of chests that he can carry home and he's quite happy with that. <laughs> a mere two two chests <laughs> yeah. full of gold and jewels. Yeah, but I, I think this is another big um, message that Tolkien's getting across, which is the whole, co- the whole reason that all these people came to blows, or nearly came to blows in the end, was over gold and how much gold and more gold than you could possibly want and when Smog goes into that uh, just goes into that absolute fury over losing a cup um, Tolkien says he, he goes into the kind of fury that a rich person goes into when they realise something small and insignificant which they owned which they didn't really need anyway has been taken from them and there's this this whole issue of greed and of wanting just as much as you can have for the sake of it and the contrast of that with Bilbo who's just happy with whatever he thinks is just about enough to make him comfortable and he wants no more than that and that's seen as a real plus for Bilbo and and obviously you can tell Tolkien likes that he likes the idea of not wanting too much I love it it's the sight of somebody in the face of more wealth than you can possibly ever have dreamed of going nah I'm alright <laughs> <laughs> like the value and quality of my life does not derive from this stuff so the, we get the, the final chapter the last stage um, and it's basically the last the last bit of the book is the, the journey home which is much less remarkable than the journey to the mountain um, but they, they march back with the elves uh, they chill at Bjorn's for a while. I think they have winter there, don't they? If they have the, yeah. you know, the Middle Earth version of Christmas at Bjorn's and have a massive party. They go past Rivendell, and they they go back there and have a another sort of <laughs> program of feasts there and and chilling out and telling stories. And they finally return to Hobbiton, where uh, Bilbo gets back just at the point where everyone's auctioning off his possessions because the issue he's died and he causes quite the commotion upon his return and he ends up having to spend some of his treasure buying back his own possessions so Tolkien has kind of established Bilbo as this example of this nice little England you know it's all about bitter beer and um, lovely lovely sunsets in uh, in beer gardens next to canals and all you know all of this very kind of pastoral vibe which is mm. true and beautiful and one of the things I love the most about the UK mm. um but it has to be said that there is there is a deeply unpleasant kind of underbelly of that whole Little Englander kind of mindset. Yeah. And it's what's what's represented by the Sackville Baggins is this unpleasant, judgmental, small minded, um uh you know, extremely hostile and very lazily greedy kind of um kind of approach to to life which the Sackville Bagginses have in in spades and i love that tolkien makes them quite laughable characters you know their yeah. kind of dudgeon and self-importance is treated with the sort of disrespect that it deserves yeah. and um and the, and the fact that even though you know even though in that mindset if somebody's come in and tried to claim all of your stuff and trying to get it back like the little englander thing to do would be to go to the small claims court and have arguments about it and despise each other for generations and bilbo's just like screw it i'm buying it back yeah it says (laughs) says a lot about bilbo's character that he's so you know he's so relaxed about that and he doesn't he doesn't turn into you could he could very easily become a very embittered and um and miserable individual because of that and and feel that because the reaction of the community as well is is one of fairly negative uh, for him after all he's done 
they don't really want to know about it he's just he's just seen as this queer guy who sort of left and uh, for a long period of time and he's regarded with a bit of suspicion in the in, in hobbinson for the rest of his life really but he yeah, doesn't yeah. become he doesn't buy into it and become an outcast and this strange uh, he lives alone um character which he's, al- he's he's almost painted as by the village now he just yeah. he, he he he's still himself and yeah. he's still this philosophical laid back um decent chap the end of the book uh we just have this little scene with Balin comes for a visit so he can effectively just so he can tell us uh, what's happened since Bilbo's <laughs> so, left? So there's so a little bit of exposition. Some spectacular exposition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we also find out during this conversation that the uh, the master, um, who <laughs> whose reputation was hanging by a thread, um, yeah. came to a bad end. Um, he was given a lot of the gold to help, but he uh, fell under dragon sickness, took much of the gold and fled with it, and then died of starvation in the waste. So um, so he got what I think most people would term is just desserts um, and <laughs> my uh, attempts to defend him uh, once again uh, become more difficult but uh, apart from oh, that you're, you're clinging to the task manfully though Matt, I'm very impressed I think there is a, still a, a little sliver of a chance that you can view him as a slightly tragic character um, where he well yeah I think anybody deformed by their own desire for power and wealth is fundamentally a tragic character yeah you know if yeah. they're not that then they're a despicable character and, yeah uh, but it's know, hard it, it's hard to justify his actions put it that way yeah um, oh yeah the final part as well the, the book rounds off on one final little lesson I suppose from Gandalf where they're mm-hmm. talking about um, Bilbo's part in this and how he was a small part of a much bigger thing and here Gandalf says you know um, surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies which have been made, but he says uh, you don't really suppose that all your adventures were managed by mere luck, just for your sole benefit. You're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm very fond of you, but you're only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. And <laughs> Bilbo's response to this is just so Bilbo. He just says, thank goodness, laughs, and hands the tobacco <laughs> jar to Gandalf. <laughs> That's such a lovely way to end it. I agree with you, because again, there's you know the book's been shot through with these images of power and importance and self-importance and wealth and all of these things, and at the middle of it all is this character who goes, yeah, why would I want to be important? Screw that, and yeah. pass me the tobacco. Yeah, beautiful, really there is, beautiful. There is that is probably the one of the things I like most about Bilbo is that complete lack of self-importance. I mean, mm. I suppose in in contrast to Thorin, who is 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 entirely filled with a sense of his own self-importance for the entire the entire book, but um, yeah. yeah, I do love that about Bilbo. How no matter what happens, no matter how important he gets and how important his part in the story is, he's still quite happy with being just a footnote in the actual mm-hmm. tale, if that's the mm-hmm. case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that brings brings it to an end, and the only thing we have left to do is. So some more general comments, and uh, as we always like to do with these books, we we tend to get a combination of feedback and and our use of the internet to to get a few reviews that that you've done yourselves or that we can find from other people on the internet. And we've got a, a selection here to go through because it's not just what we think of it; it's what the rest of the people think as well. 
And um, this, this is my favourite bit. <laughs> well, you won't be surprised to hear that the reviews, um, both directly sent to us and on the internet, are overwhelmingly positive. Uh, <laughs> because it's a very popular book and if you go on the internet you'll see a lot of five stars and four star reviews um, I've got a selection of them here mm. um, and we'll just go through them one by one the, uh, Scott gave it five stars and he says there are some days when I actually think that The Humble Hobbit is superior to its big brother The Lord of the Rings it's a much tighter story and Bilbo's a much more appealing character than Frodo what do you think about that? do you think Bilbo's a better character than Frodo? I think he's got something different to do I think they both come from the same place but at the end of the I mean at the end of the day all Bilbo's got to do is you know go through this kind of adolescent growing up arc and come home yeah and what Frodo's got to do is save the world by being the sole bearer of unspeakable evil in the form of jewelry I mean it's a, <laughs> they don't really bear they only bear comparison because they happen in the same world and they're related yeah as individuals um I think they're very similar yeah. as well Frodo and Bilbo I think they're written yeah. as um, is almost the same character in a way. It's just the events that change them. Uh, Caleb uh, gave it five stars, and he said the Hobbit was a great book that I enjoyed reading. Thrills on every page. Uh, it had really good themes of perseverance and courage. Uh, even though even though it's a fantasy book, you can take lessons from it. Uh, he said I learned that you should never judge someone because of their outward appearance. Uh, mm. The Hobbit is one of the best fantasy books I've ever read, and I think that's a nice reading of it. It's a good theme that the, there is this throughout the book of of, uh, of characters being more or less than what you expect um, when you first see them. Yeah, I, I you know I hadn't thought of that really, um, yeah. but you know you're absolutely right. Um, kind of allowing characters to turn out to be who they are mm. instead yeah. of who they appear to be. Uh, Andy uh, gave it four stars. He said, in all, I enjoyed it. And I quite like this turn of phrase he had. He said, for me, this is by far the best book of hers. Uh, reading it is sitting around a campfire hearing tales spun of old, which is quite oh. nice. Cause it, oh, it is that's a, quite pretty, isn't it? Yeah, and it is a classic. It does feel like a classic book list. And sometimes, partly because of the way the uh, the, the writer, uh, Tolkien sometimes speaks to you directly in the book, speaks to the reader directly, and it feels like it's someone sitting across from you just spinning a fantastic tale. Yeah, it's a yarn, isn't it? It's yeah. a, it's a yarn, a classic, perfect example of a good yarn, well told. I like yeah. that a lot. Uh, Cameron gave it five stars, loves it, and he said the characters are detailed and relevant to the story. There's not one character that drags the book down because he's boring. All the dwarves are interesting and have something to say. Each one of them is unique. Now, I take issue with this a bit because I couldn't tell you one significant difference between for example Biffer and Bomber hey Cameron with all the love of the universe mate what like <laughs> uh, did you read it more slowly than I did because uh, <laughs> like because I, I maybe I skipped over the bit where there was a there was an exegesis on the character of Bomber versus Biffer versus Philly versus Killy the, and, and the fact that he's had to give more rhyming names does sort of tell you how much depth he's planning to give him you only remember them because they rhyme yeah. Oh, hang on. Did I, did I say a difference between Biffer and Bomber? I think you did. Yeah. Obviously, there is a massive because Bomber is a big fat one, isn't he? He does have quite a lot oh, of character development. Um, but if we um, say Biffer and Boffer, because um, they are two others, Biffer, and and they are surely Boffer. indistinguishable. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Dory is, I suppose, distinguishable because he's he helps Bilbo out a couple of times. But beyond that, there's not really much to say about him. I tell you um, what. I, it, 
talking about these names gives me a thought, and I wonder if anybody can email in and tell us if they've ever heard of this. Seems to me that, speaking as a Tolkien fan, Tolkien fans are just about unhinged enough to do this, given the wealth of names in this book. I wonder how many children have been named over time after some of these dwarves. <laughs> if you've yeah. ever heard of any children named after the dwarves or any other characters in The Hobbit, please, please email in and let us know. Because I've got, a, I've got a horrible, itchy feeling at the back of my soul that that, you know, a suspicion about the way human beings work that that's going to turn out to have happened. I'm and sure. And I really want to satisfy the question. I'm sure there's a family, probably in America, maybe like somewhere in Wyoming or something, who've got 12 kids and they're all named after the dwarves. <laughs> <laughs> there's Dory, Philly, Killy, Biffa, Boffa, Bomber. Bomber. <laughs> all working on a farm. And Clive. <laughs> Clive. <laughs> Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, another five-star one. Uh, Jamie, he says, The Hobbit is so good. Back in the day, Tolkien had an understanding about elves. He saw that they, for the most part, are not achingly beautiful children of the stars. They're just small people who have pointy ears, live in forests, drink wine, and kick barrels into rivers. Which is quite nice. <laughs> He's, he loves the interpretation of the elves in this book. Yeah. Um, he says, uh, as, a, as a comment about this compared to The Lord of the Rings, for the Lord of the Rings, he says, Tolkien stretched himself to, to literary, creative, and emotional exhaustion with the Lord of the Rings. This book came before all that, and as I understand it, before the bombs fell in earnest on London, it's proof that he was an actual storyteller. He was a man who told a simple story and told it well. Uh, so Jamie thinks that Tolkien was a better writer before his experience of the Second World War, and that The Hobbit is an example of that. I don't know, because I think he just tried to do something bigger. You know, I think there's much more of the sense of magnum opus about um, about Lord of the Rings, yeah. which, um, you know, which which The Hobbit simply doesn't have and doesn't intend to have. As we said, this is a predominantly very well-received book. A lot of four and five star reviews, but... There are one star ones if you uh, if you have them <laughs> if you want to find them and Bring I've got a few on. here. So there are some people who don't like don't like Lord of the Rings, don't like The Hobbit, don't like anything that Tolkien's written, and some people who have a specific problem with with The Hobbit. So uh, the first one, one star. This is an anonymous one, and it's it always good to see somebody willing to stand behind the force of their opinions. <laughs> yeah, and it's slammed as a he said it. It was just a, basically a series of events that did not develop any of the characters. I felt there was really no plot. There were no dramatic questions. There was no goal worthy of achieving. The characters seemed one-dimensional. So it's a, it's a fairly um, you know, it's thoughtful one-star review. Uh, yeah. Uh, so let's go through it one by one. Uh, didn't develop the characters. I think that's unfair because Bilbo is just changed quite dramatically throughout the book. Yeah. Um, no plots. Well, I disagree with that. Um, no I major. Don't, I don't see how you plot. can argue that there's no plot. Yeah, it's like, pretty much entirely plot, isn't it? It's all plot. It's a children's book. Yeah, I suppose the the only one which maybe um, you may have something in is no goal worthy of achieving. It wasn't. In, if you compare it to the Lord of the Rings, it wasn't saving the world. Yeah, but, but if you compare sort of 
Harry Potter to the Bible, then you're going to come up with some serious misgivings as well. Like, you, you, you absolutely must compare something meaningful with something that's trying to be meaningful on roughly the same level. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and like I say, I don't find the idea of travelling across the world to get some, you know, get rich or die trying, I think, is, is a great summary of the... <laughs> Maybe it's fundamentally banal, but actually it does allow Tolkien at the end to have a lot of fun with things like responsibility and good relationships in the face of enormous wealth yeah. and um, the tension between, you know, um, uh, greed and uh, and healthy interactions. Yeah. Okay. Steve gave it one star. He says, he? yeah, Steve. he says, hated it. Why have the 12 dwarves if Gandalf comes in and saves the day every time? Which is, I mean, we've touched on that. And <laughs> are we really supposed to believe that the dragon is impervious to attack except for one place? And then that is the place that the arrow strikes. Please. <laughs> well, I think if that's what's pissing you off about the entire book, then you may not have read it properly. <laughs> yeah. To be perfectly honest. I, th- like, I think. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, so I mean, so I said this earlier on, and and so to a certain extent, I agree that it's it's kind of distant in the extreme, but, <laughs> um, but I sort of feel like there is such a thing as the willing suspension of disbelief, and when you've yeah. got a world populated through the power of magic by eight or nine different races all of whom manage to interact somehow and have the same language and and there are jewels so beautiful that they can warp men's minds properly not just in a figurative sense and and on and on and on and on and on and your problem is with the dragon and his vulnerable spot i'm sympathetic to that but at the same time you know yeah i think i think i mean he he does have valid points with both of them because we've discussed them ourselves haven't we about how gandalf is sometimes this get us of jail free card and the dragon as a absolutely central part of the story does get killed in a fairly questionable way and maybe a little bit underwhelming the way he's killed but yeah i think you're right you have to go into a book like this suspending your disbelief a little bit and saying um Part of part of me is just here for the ride, you know. I actually think, you know, we 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 kick around books like this, and 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 it's a lot of fun. Um, but I I I kind of hope we assess these books on their own terms instead of sort of demanding they be something that they they were never trying to be. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, for all that we've established that Bilbo's a fifty cent um uh, simulacrum. <laughs> <laughs> an avatar for 50 cent in this story <laughs> alright um, now, now listen, Catherine she rated it one star this is our final one star review that I've come across right and right. Um, and she says I think the reason why I hated capital letters and ooh, abhorred capital letters this ooh, book ooh, is was... bingo, go on, <laughs> do a third one <laughs> is that I was forced to read it as part of my 6th grade English class and do ridiculously stupid assignments after each chapter. I'm not sure if she's got more of a problem with it, her English class than the book. But, no, I was um... going to say, this is not so much a critique of, of <laughs> the book as it is of the people who made you read the book. We all know the... that's a fantastic way of ruining the book. <laughs> There's more. Um, oh, right. Sorry, carry um, on, carry on. I was even reluctant to dignify this book with a one star. Then again, someday, maybe I'll try to read this again. I'll have to buy another copy, though. Because I burned my first. 
<laughs> oh lord That's i love nice. the image yeah 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 <laughs> the, the idea of the idea it. yeah of, a, of an 11 year old girl as well just ritually burning the book she's been forced in, to in my head in my head she sets fire to it in the english class <laughs> fuming through the entire term where they're studying it and just gets up with a sense of incredible importance strides to the front of the class whips out a lighter looks the teacher dead in the eyes doesn't, blink, petrol. doesn't break the gaze and just goes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh well, well done catherine um yeah if, that's the, if that's the way you did it i respect you enormously catherine and if it's not yeah. the way you did it i'm gonna bleep Anyway. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Have you any any final any final thoughts on the book before we wrap up? I've got one final review which I'll read as the end. But um, right, right. any thoughts? Um, I I think we've had a lot of fun, kind of um, kind of wandering through it, and I think I think it definitely it picks up a sense of um, uh, richness and depth towards the end. Mm. Um, where I think Tolkien really clearly decided to kick it into another gear, and you can almost hear it moving towards Lord of the Rings territory. Yeah. Uh, in the last bit of the book, um, and I think it doesn't do everything, and there's a lot of stuff that it does, particularly early on in the book, which is quite feels sort of phoned in. Mm. Um, but those moments are vastly outweighed by the complexity of character and the fun that you have going on this journey, and uh, and and I think it's nowhere close to being sort of the perfect book or even the perfect children's book. I think there's lots of stuff that it does wrong, but um, I but I, I still think it is a work of genius. I really do. Well, um, that is pretty much it then for us on the Hobbit. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it, and if you've any comments on the podcast or on the Hobbit. The next one, I think, is going to be The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern, which is a right bang-up-to-date one, uh, released relatively recently. Uh, but yeah, any of your comments, more than welcome, and uh, we'll read them out. And all you need to do is send them to the email address, which is sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, the only other thing we'd like you to do is, if you can, give us an iTunes review. Uh, which is just log into iTunes, go on the Shark Live Royal podcast and uh, just give us a, a little review because that helps bump us up the uh, the ratings and drives more people towards us. Okay, uh, I think we can we can wrap up with one final review. And it's, I'm looking uh, from, forward to this. It's from Jason who gave it five stars. And he says, As a child, The Hobbit sparked my young imagination causing wonderful daydreams and horrible nightmares. As a teen... The book made me want to become a writer of fantastical tales or go shoeless, live in a hole and smoke a pipe. As an adult, <laughs> as an adult, Tolkien's novel maintains with me a link to my childhood, safekeeping cherished memories and evoking everlasting emotions. That's quite a nice summary of it, I think. I, I agree, and I think that's beautiful. And I think, I think, you know, I think the world is filled with people who will say precisely that mm. about this book. And um, or filled with people who I think will say very similar things about this book, despite Thorin. <laughs> very good. He did get rich, Thorin, in the end. He, he did. Didn't, he, he didn't he, die. He got rich oh, oh, he did and die trying. trying. Well. <laughs> he got rich and died trying. 
He's the ultimate <laughs> hip hop superstar, is that <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Dave, and uh, till next time. Not at all, Matt.